Hello everyone, and welcome back to 404. In this episode, I sat down with a good friend of mine, Thomas Copeland. Thomas is studying at Queen's University and working part-time with media production company Third Street Studios, whilst also running his own projects on the side, such as his weekly radio show The Scoop on Queen's University Radio and his website Challenges NI. This episode's another long one, but has a lot of interesting discussion. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, Thomas, thanks a million for joining me today. Um, the first, I think, well, no, the second non-politician on the podcast, so that should be a great honor, not only for myself, but for you as well. Um, firstly, I'd just like to ask, if someone didn't know who you are, how would you describe sort of yourself and what you do? Um, well, thank you very much for having me on. It is a distinct privilege to be the second non-politician. Hopefully I can live up to that. Um, I love this podcast. I listen to it regularly, so thank you for having me on. It's oh, a real honor. Um, let me see, how do I describe myself? That's, a, that's, a, good, that's a, good, a good question and one that I probably am not asked enough. I suppose I am what you might call an, asp- an aspiring journo. That would be on, on, you know, on the Twitter bio. I'm interested in journalism, uh, media and politics. And I'm in a fortunate position at the moment of being at university, which means that you can kind of try these things out, find exactly mm-hmm. what areas you like, what areas you, you don't like. So I suppose that intersection between media and all of the, you know, um, all of the drama that comes with that and politics as well are, are where my interests lie in particular. So I, I want to pursue journalism in some way, shape or form. I don't think I will ever be a, a beat journalism, you know, who, who, who gets, you know, the little cap with a pen and notes everything down. I think I'm more of a broadcast journalist. I enjoy that form of communication with, with audiences, but I don't really know. Um, so uh, I'll come back to you in five years time when I figure out exactly what my path is and let you know what the updated bio is at that stage. At the moment, I'm just figuring things out. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'll definitely have to hold you to that anyways. Um, A a promise made on this show is a promise that will 100% be followed up on anyways. Absolutely. Um, I should explain, by the way, at the outset, I'm I'm actually sitting in the the Queen's radio (laughs) studio in Queen's University uh, where we broadcast a lot of our music from. I don't do the the music, but hence... um, uh, Ariana Grande is, is just here and some scouting for girls in the corner. Uh, if we'd faced the other way, you would have had the, I had to make a choice. You would have had One Direction in the background. And I, I it was a toss up for me and I figured we'd, we'd go with Ariana Grande as opposed to One Direction. So hopefully I made the, uh, an all right call. And I, think it, I think you would have been considered a man of culture either way, Thomas. Yes, well, yeah, thank you very much. It's, yeah. it's it, yeah, it's high art. And also, I'm pretty sure the viewers at this stage are probably six or tired of looking at my drab background with the single painting that I don't even know where we got it, but there it is anyways. Um, what, so speaking on journalism a little bit more, what sort of brought this love of journalism? Was it, can you pinpoint one specific moment or was it just sort of a gradual uh, falling in love with it? I think it's a very gradual thing. When I was much younger, I did uh, Model United Nations. I'm not sure if that's something that that mm-hmm. happens much uh, at your school where you're growing up, but um, that sort of brought me into politics at quite an early age. But to be honest, I never really realized how into politics I was until I got to sixth form. I was quite a, conf- I'd say maybe confused at the time when I was, was, was leaving my GCSEs and sort of going into sixth form. I started off uh, choosing uh, biology, was it biology, maths, uh, chemistry and music. Mm. And within two weeks time, I had dropped all of them and was doing history, French, music, and politics. And the reason I chose politics is because I went to my careers teacher and said, I'm really not enjoying chemistry. Can I, can I move to RE? 
was I'd looked at the syllabus and, so, uh, and I'd seen that um, there was quite a lot of ethics in RE. So questions like euthanasia, abortion, and I was quite interested in those things. You know, the rest was the gospels and whatnot, which I'm not as interested in, but I thought I'd like that ethics side of things. And she said to me, Thomas, fantastic, but unfortunately, uh, our religious education is all full up. The only spaces we really have left are in politics. So I, you know, slightly apprehensively jumped into politics. And I, uh, honestly, within the, the first lesson, I knew that, uh, you know, one of those moments where I just thought to myself, right, this is it. I feel really at home here. I'm loving the conversations that we're having and the kind of content that, that I'm getting stuck into. And that was fairly sort of um, life-changing to me because I do not believe that if I hadn't studied politics at that at, at, at a level, I would have gone anywhere near down the path I am at the moment. When I was, let me see, so around that time, 16 or 17, um, myself and a, another um, uh, another student in the class called Jack O'Dwyer Henry, we set up uh, a little thing called Challenges NI, um, which is a platform, we called it a platform for youth engagement in politics. So over a number of years, we ran a series of events, which were debate hustings um, for a series of elections uh, taking place in Northern Ireland and general elections as well. And then sort of uh, debates on individual issues. So we did one on devolution. Uh, and, and, and the very first event actually we held was called, um, what was it? Yeah, what's wrong with Northern Ireland politics and how can we fix it? Which, if nothing else, shows you the kind of naivety and enthusiasm with which we approach the topic. And you will be unsurprised to know that by the end of that evening, we hadn't figured out what was wrong with Northern Ireland politics, nor indeed had we fixed it. But we, you know, we, we kept going nonetheless. And then uh, in my upper sixth year, I kind of moved the platform myself a little bit from those events to having um, a, a kind of news blog where we'd invite young people to write long form articles, a thousand words or so about issues uh, they were passionate about. And that continues to this day. So that was, that was kind of the, the formative part for me of getting into to politics and journalism then stems from that and stems from my interest in writing and encouraging different perspectives and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I, I suppose that's, a, that's where it all came from. The other thing that's worth saying is that as a younger teenager and child, I was very um, musical. So I did a lot of music and I did a lot of drama and uh, I really enjoyed those things and for a while was considering whether drama school or, or music college might be for me. And as you will be unsurprised to find out, uh, those things come with a little bit of an ego. And so I find that, that politics and media and broadcast journalism nicely combines my love of performance and the adrenaline and the thrill of, of a live television show, a live radio show with the other thing that I loved, which was politics. And, and all of the drama that comes with that and how it affects people's lives and the importance that it has in our society. So for me, sort of journalism and broadcast journalism in particular sits nicely in the middle of that Venn diagram between the performance that I loved as a child and the thrill and adrenaline of that and this, the real and serious work in politics um, and social issues as well. So that's where that came from, I suppose. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning uh, a little bit about how when you were going to change your subject, which is, I suppose, might be surprising enough to people nowadays, but I suppose if you take it into the context and some people might argue Northern Ireland, it wouldn't be out of place for ORE to be full up, but politics maybe not so much. Was um, was was politics when you were starting just a relatively new subject in the curriculum at that stage? That's a good question. What I can say is that um, in, in, in Northern Ireland anyway, and I'm sure there are 
connections and, 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 and similarities where you are uh, sort of in the Republic. Uh, uh, religious education was compulsory for GCSE. Mm-hmm. But whilst being compulsory, I suppose a lot of people would say it was it was quite easy in that in GCSE, oh, yeah. <laughs> CRE, a large proportion of the class really did quite well. And I think that engendered maybe a complacency and confidence, which meant that when students who weren't entirely sure what they would do going into sixth form, they looked at their results from GCSE and thought to themselves, oh, well, I did quite well in RE. I'll maybe take that one forward. In, in terms of politics, at my school, politics had been running, I think, for a good number of years, I think at least five or six years, if not more. Uh, don't hold me to that. I could be wrong. But I was quite lucky. My school was quite large. And uh, in, in my school in total had nearly 3,000 students. Um, I think it's one of the, the largest or the second largest in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and that meant that we had quite a lot of options when it came to subjects. I mean, if you wanted to for a time, you could study Russian or Greek or, you know, lots of other quite niche things. Um, I did Latin when I was a lot younger because the size of the school meant that that was all available to you and also meant there was, a, you know, a sufficiently large grouping of students who were interested in politics and political issues that I yeah. find people with whom I could, um, you know, uh, make friendships around political issues. Um, so I was very lucky in that regard. Um, did, you didn't do politics. Did you do politics? No, it wasn't, a, it course, wasn't an yeah. option when I was doing the Leaving Cert. It's only been introduced recently to the curriculum. I think it's right. two years old or three you, years old. What did you do? Oh God, you're bringing up memories I had maybe, you know, d- hidden away at this stage. I, I did, I did Irish. Um, obviously the core ones we had to do were Irish, English and maths. Uh, alongside that I did geography home economics which was funny off because I was terrible at it um, and I did Spanish and music right so we do we do both did music I suppose yeah. well it's interesting isn't it because um, well, yeah I would I would have thought that you would do would have done something like history but I suppose Spanish is a bit of an essay writing subject in, you know, in some ways and that led you to law I well, it's, that's it's, interesting. it's funny enough I in a sense. those subjects for you, to be honest. Yeah, it, it, it's funny enough in a sense because my degree incorporates law with history, so it's an arts one, so it has this extra subject. And I had, and I had obviously, oh. I had done history for the junior certificate, which is just three years, but then I had kind of dropped it for uh, the leaving cert because it has this reputation of being quite a very heavy-handed topic you know as you say you know like subjects like religion were kind of seen as the easy grade and when you're looking to get into college you're not worried about what am I interested in you're worried about what will get me into the course I actually want to do so history as much as I found it interesting uh I surprised because it wasn't even my first uh, option to do with law I actually wanted to do media studies but uh, suffice to say I didn't get the required qualifications for it so I got history instead which may have been a blessing in disguise really because it's probably one of my more favorite subjects now yeah, no, I did history at A-level, and the, the most interesting part of it was an Irish history module, mm. and I still distinctly recall, probably not in enough detail, but um, that, 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 that's been fairly instrumental in terms of politics going forward, even perhaps more so now as politics in Ireland starts to, to change, having that understanding of, of, of the history of, of this island has been really beneficial to me. Yeah. Um, so I know it's a shame that your, your, your degree doesn't um, you know, have enough home economics in it. <laughs> that's a, a, a wasted skills at leaving wasted cert level skill. i still make the odd past in there and then so i suppose it's right, not okay, gone yeah, fully yeah. to waste um anyway so we'll move back a little bit i think we veered off a little bit in a tangent there but a, a good tangent nonetheless um so 
you work be a part-time now with you know Stephen Nolan and you've done stuff in the past with regards to Sky News with the newspaper reports uh, you're working I think is it it's for now correct me because uh, I'm more likely to get this wrong than not you're working for Nolan's private company I believe it's is it Third Street Studios is that the one yeah well let me let me talk through then uh, my kind of journey from school so mm-hmm. when I was in uh, upper sixth came the period of time when um, students were, were, you know, uh, the careers teacher stood up at the front of the, the assembly and said, right, you, you know, your deadline for submitting your UCAS forms for, for getting to college and to university is coming up. You need to have your personal statements chosen. Um, the expectation was that everybody over the, you know, the summer of lower sixth, so just before their last year of, of, of high school, had decided what, top, what, what subjects they were going to do at university. Mm-hmm. And I was not in that position. Some of that comes from the kind of confusion that I've talked about earlier in terms of what I was doing from from GCSE into sixth form. I was not confident about what decisions I wanted to make. So I took the decision at that stage and I was, you know, in in sixth form in my school, there were maybe 250, nearly 300 students. As I understand it, I I was one of two who decided that I would not apply for university in my upper sixth year. I wasn't confident about what I was going to do. I definitely had ideas about where I was going to go. And actually the, the, the things that I had in my head in that stage were the, were, the, were the ones that I ended up pursuing. But I wasn't confident that I wanted to lay, a, lay down that amount of money in, you know, in student finance, um, maintenance, accommodation loans when I wasn't confident what I was going to do. I do believe, incidentally, that the system whereby students, at least in Northern Ireland, and I can't speak to the Republic, uh, where students are asked in when they're moving from lower sick to upper sick to make life altering decisions about what university they're studying in, then to combine their application for university and to be doing that at the same time as they're meant to be studying for their final exams. I think that's reckless. And I think that, uh, you know, the exams debacle that we saw over the course of COVID uh, this summer was even more evidence of that. And I also think that students are too often uh, sort of corralled into moving on to university when it's not either not the right move for them or they just aren't ready to make that decision. And that's why, you know, increasingly large numbers of art students in particular come to the end of their degree and realize that they never really wanted to do it. Uh, and you see huge numbers of students who completely changed the, the, their career path at that stage. But anyway, I, so I was keen to avoid that. So I left school and um, started on a, what I suppose at the time was a, a gap year. No, I, would, I didn't go traveling or anything like that. It was a gap year based on work. And I, I actually did large portions of uh, an A-level MAS qualification at the same time. And I was fortunate enough to, through kind of perseverance on my part with writing emails and things, I was fortunate enough to fall in with um, a production company called Third Street Studios. Now that company is owned by, by Stephen Nolan. And one of the projects that they were working on was a big show on BBC Northern Ireland that's still on BBC Northern Ireland called The Top Table. Mm-hmm. And that was a show where young people were given a platform alongside political commentators and, and politicians to discuss political issues. I'd been involved in that show. I'd been on one of the shows in the past and then was uh, asked and I'm enormously grateful for being asked to be involved in the production of that show. And so that brought me, I worked for two years full-time for a production company, and then um, I now do so part-time uh, while studying at university. I'm at Queen's doing politics, philosophy, and economics. So I, I, I mean, I've derived enormous benefit from that, and it has always been, I'm enormously grateful to, to that company. 
and to Stephen for for being willing to sort of take me on to teach me. I've I've learned a huge amount. It's been formative in my perspectives and my experiences. Uh, and I know it is not a, it is a position that that hundreds, if not thousands, of other young people would love to be in. I'm enormously grateful for it. And so that gave me experience of of making television shows. I've uh, uh, been you know assistant producer on on the top table for two, three years now, um, researched and assistant producer on, on documentaries for BBC Northern Ireland um, uh, for, and also for, for uh, the BBC nationwide as well. So that, I mean, I've learned a huge amount from that and then I've been very fortunate to be able to come into university and the things that I do now, equipped with that skill and knowledge and experience, which I've tried to use in the work that I continue to do. And then you mentioned the paper review. So the, that was a bit strange, really. Somebody approached me three years ago and said Sky News is looking to expand its uh, pool of newspaper commentators. Would you be interested in taking part? I said, yeah, absolutely. Why not? So for two years, I flew, you know, once a month or so over to London, get up at 4 a.m. and went on and, and, and had a chat about uh, the newspaper headlines on Sky News. And I did the same on BBC Five Live for a while as well. Um, thankfully, now I still do them. Thankfully, now uh, they figured out that it's doable online, which so one can question why so much money, time, energy, and resource was spent on flying me over to Hounslow to the the studios there. But um, no, that that's been a brilliant experience as well, and as has forced me to read the newspapers more than I otherwise might have, which is also a very beneficial beneficial thing to do. I'd recommend it. Uh, with regards to just the you mentioned you were approached about the paper review, was that was was that them seeing your work with regards to Third Street Studios and then approaching you or was it something completely different? That was really through challenges. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, so at, at that time, I am still editor of Challenges in Northern Ireland, which is a platform, like I said, for, for youth journalism and youth commentary and political issues. So that was kind of my in as such. And that's still the tagline that's used when I when I go on something like Sky or Five Live. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's used. And what I try to do then is give a perspective that is based on uh, the opinions and perspectives of young people as best I can. Um, um, so, yeah, so that was really through that was really through challenges, uh, Northern Ireland. And it's actually been uh, equipped me with fantastic skills as well that I know I will use. The nature of those kind of jobs is that, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning, 4 a.m. in the morning, you're sent through all of the headlines from all of the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And your job really is to, and what I perceive it now, some people come at newspaper reviews with a much more uh, partisan perspective and they're there to make a point. Maybe they come from a think tank or a political party or they edit a newspaper or something. My opinion has always been something that's grounded in kind of journalism. I, I, I consider my job to be to, on something like a newspaper review to look at the story, dissect it, present it in a, in a digestible and accessible way, and then add in some links and relationships that people wouldn't have otherwise spotted. And the ability to do that is something I struggled with quite a lot at the start, you know, looking at a, a newspaper headline, a newspaper story, knowing all of the breadth of content that goes in there and is relevant to it, and then trying to summarize that, you know, over the course of a, a two, three minute um, you know, uh, press A, and then have a conversation extended about it is a skill that is is very valuable and actually something I really appreciate. It it helps you to narrow down exactly what your perspectives are. You're interested in politics, like me, but actually sometimes being forced to say, right, well, get your thoughts and opinions and perspectives down for a two three minute press A, 
can really force you to have a think, well, hold on, what do I think about that? And, and how best do I express that content? And, uh, and where, does, you know, where, where does that perspective come from and how does it all fit together? Is something that is, it's good to be forced to do that. And I, you know, I'd recommend people try that occasionally because it can really help focus your thoughts and opinions. Do you, actually, that's a good question because not enough people read newspapers, I think. I know I don't. Do you, do you buy a newspaper during the week? No, I have the uh, I have the apps on my phone. And I look at stories as they come up or whatever. I've actually made it a sort of a commitment now to at least read an article a day because I think it's something I skip over quite a bit. And I think oh, it's yeah. something a lot more people should do because the one thing I've always said and I hated it was everyone, I think Twitter's new function actually for when you go to retweet an article and it asks you if you've read it. I think that's a brilliant idea. And a load of people, I remember when it first came out, people were annoyed at it. And I was like, why are you annoyed about it? If you're going to retweet an article, you should at least have to know about, like to know what's in it, what you're retweeting, because so much so people see a headline. And I think you and I both know this. Uh, you probably know it a bit more firsthand. The people who write the articles aren't writing the headlines. They're completely different people altogether. So somebody could write a really brilliant article and it can be destroyed by some, you know, we always see getting quoted for a misogynistic headline they've used or something with regards to that. And well, maybe not but Irish publications in general, you know, would get on Twitter, they get a fair bit of slack for, say, using certain words when they should have used a more typical word. And, you know, people take the headline as if, OK, well, if this is this is indicative of what the entire article's about, but people don't do that. So yeah. I think uh, if there's anything, I would say it's probably best that people read an article for themselves and then come out with a, a qualified opinion, because most of the commentary I see on newspaper articles are you know, they're like, oh, why isn't this happening? And then that question is answered in the article, but they haven't bothered to read it. So, yeah, yeah exactly. I think as well, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm fortunate enough that my parents will occasionally buy a newspaper so I don't spend money on it and I can steal it when they're finished with it. You know, the value of, of something in longer form is, mm. is often overlooked. I, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, you know, in a bit. I'm on Twitter. I use Twitter regularly. I spend too much time scrolling on Twitter mm. um, and, and, and there are all sorts of reasons for that I think that you know it's actually I think it's becoming a bit of a problem for me that I've, you know if I don't go on Twitter for a number of hours I will start to panic about what I've missed <laughs> and I think you know that kind of I, I suppose in some ways isn't it an anxiety of sorts is something that I'm sure lots of people feel who are interested in this area and I'm not, you know and it's a consequence of 24-hour constant ruling news and also everybody's ability to talk about everything at every time but I've always taken the opinion that I don't post, I rarely um, tweet sort of uh, perspectives and political opinions because I think to myself, one, you know, how much value is there in putting that out there? It will have been said before. Mm -hmm. And two, I think sometimes the problem actually with the world of media news is that there's almost, there's almost too much of it all of the time. And unless I feel I can really substantially add to a conversation or a debate, um, uh, by by you know injecting something into it, I try not to do so. But yeah, but you're right in terms of you know, uh, I I agree with that. I largely agree with that function to, to for it doesn't force you to read it, mind you. Does it not just no? Say, you can just read. read you can just retweet yeah. it anyways. It just asks if you've yeah. read it. Like, I know. Yeah. Um. Actually, just because we're we're on the topic now, and I have a bit further down my list, but we talk about it now. We were talking about you know speed with regards to media and. One of the questions I was going to bring up, um, which I'll come back to after we've talked about this, was about, you know, the similarities between TV and radio. But I think the one thing we can both agree on is that a huge similarity is, you know, getting news out first, you know, being the first to a story. And 
that used to be a thing um now this could be me looking at it rose tinted glasses but i remember when growing up stories were very you know you know put under the put under the headlights like you know and examined very carefully before being even considered to be put out into the public realm but now everything since it's gone online and everything i actually sound like such a boomer at the moment but we keep going anyways uh ever since everything's gone online you know everything is pushed out straight away and it's more important to be the first to a story as opposed to being accurate with the story do you think that that's going to you know change a little bit over time do you think it's going to get a bit more grounded and people are going to take a step back and look at what they've done or do you think it's just going to continue to get worse well in examining this problem the first thing i would probably say is that i'm not that the internet has definitely compounded whatever issues you see that's made it more complex more difficult but actually you know the the, the inception of this issue and I'm, i wouldn't actually go as far to say as a problem it really just goes back to 24-hour news channels so BBC World News, it was called BBC, BBC 24, I think, was launched in what, like 1998? It might have been just after that, actually. And I can't remember. It was launched sometime in the, you know, in, from the mid-90s to the early 2000s. And that was, and, and Sky News did the same. And then you see, you know, more and more 24-hour news channels. And that was the point at which I think things fundamentally changed. Because up until that point, if you got a story, the next possible opportunity that you could have to publish that story was either the next edition of the paper, and that's why evening editions of things like the you know the London Evening Standard became popular because it was an opportunity to get you know news out for the stuff that evening, so you didn't need to wait until the next day's paper, the next morning's paper. Hmm. That was one or two. If you worked in something like um, if you worked in something like a television, then it was going to be whenever the next. Um, bulletin was so you'd get it ready for the six or get it ready for the 10 and then i suppose radio did have a little bit of this kind of 24-hour thing to it in terms of you know your question of, of rushing to get a story out I, i'm generally of the opinion that 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 energy and that impetus and that and, and that kind of rush as you put it is is a good thing i think that we should be encouraging people uh, to you know, to try to find out information to get it to the public as quickly as possible. And it's not, it's not new either. What is new in terms of the internet age, however, I believe is that, and this is a combination of sort of the proliferation and what they call democratization of, of the internet means that everybody on Twitter, and Challenges Northern Ireland is a great example of that, everybody can have their little outlet and everybody can find a little scoop and freelance journalism has become a much bigger business than it used to be. And you get individual journalists who can, you know, throw in freedom of information quests and almost run, you know, run a, 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 a micro journalism platform all by themselves. I don't know if I see too many. I, I, I rarely see kind of um, I rarely see people getting big scoops and then not doing. This is the value of, of proper norms and practices is that, you know, if you find a story, you need to. Get, you need to go through all you know all the all of the proper procedures in order to make sure that it's fully vetted. You get numerous people to look at it. You make sure that you ask people who are mentioned in it for a comment or a statement on that story. I think all of that is largely adhered to. Um, so obeying those standards and practices, I think, is quite important. But um, you know, part part of the problem is certainly that there's this uh, on Twitter in particular this constant kind of update, 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 update. But I would largely be of the opinion that there are more benefits to that than downsides and, and those kind of updates and holding politicians to account outside of the 6 p.m. bulletin 
and the 10 p.m. bulletin is a really valuable thing. And so there are definitely problems. There are definitely problems that come as a result of it. But I'd say that the benefits in terms of accountability and transparency are, are palpably greater. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's not, in, at least in a certain sense, there's a, like when there used to be, at least with major news, major news publications, if a story went out and it was found that it was slightly inaccurate, there was at least accountability in that stage. But with the sort of, you know, broadening of media to include the social media sphere, you know, if a story goes out and it's proved to be wrong, like, you know, the damage is done and there really is no accountability to the individual who's put it out at that stage. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that argument. I think on the other side of it, I mean, one of the advantages of, and, and this is something that's being talked about an awful lot more, is, is social media anonymity and whether you should be forced to, you know, publish your name, your details, some sort of certification in order to get a social media account. I think that there are real downsides to that, less so in, in the UK, but more in, in, in countries where, you know, governmental control and mm -hmm. oppression and, and, and limitations on freedom of speech and all that kind of stuff are much greater than they are here. There are clear benefits to not always having to reveal you know your name age address yeah. and phone number whenever you put out potentially incriminating information about a politician or not necessarily incriminating you know you hold politicians to account in that way so i think that needs to be included in the conversation in whatever way what i would say and i i don't know the answer to this is that it sometimes seems to me that a lot of media bandwidth is spent talking about either hypotheticals or or kind of rumors of what, what might happen. And Brexit plays into this in some ways because they're, you know, it's it's all kind of game theory. And well, what happens if this happens? And what happens if this happens? And what happens under this circumstance? It seems to me that a lot of time is spent talking about, uh, you know, rumors that have perhaps emerged online or, or originated online. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I do not really see it as a major, what I think is a more interesting result of the world of social media is what um, happens to trust in uh, media sources. Here's what I mean by that. So uh, people are, uh, newspaper um, uh, circulation is plummeting. Mm -hmm. In the UK, it's plummeting in Ireland. Far fewer people are buying newspapers anymore. What that does is it forces uh, newspapers to move online. Like you say, a lot of them do that. But in order to run in any sort of, uh, you know, uh, in any sort of uh, profitable business online, you need to monetize it. And that leaves you with two options. One is to just inundate your app with ads, which is very frustrating and actually doesn't really get you over the profit margin. You know, the evidence seems to suggest that that's not a terribly successful way of actually making any money. Mm -hmm. but if you look at the newsletter in Northern Ireland, it's operated by a sort of Johnson Johnson Media Group. And there, I mean, there are so many ads on, on their on their app, on their website, and it still doesn't really turn over a profit. The only sustainable way to run businesses is subscription models. So I'm not sure if you subscribe to something like the Washington Post or New York Times is one of the first ones to do this. Do you subscribe to any, actually, do you pay for uh, well, any of those? With, with student contributions, we're allowed to get free access to the independent. Yeah, would you, here's a question, that would you do that? Would you pay if you weren't a student? Um, I, I would say, yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to get a news source, you know, you're not paying for the newspaper anymore, which is the physical print. You're actually probably saving money by paying for the subscription service anyways, because you're getting a lot more content over a longer period of time. But you just don't have to go yeah. out and get a physical copy each time, which probably rakes up, I'd say, to more money than the subscription service. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, 
encouraging people to take up those subscription services as opposed to, you know, as, as newspaper circulations decline will be a real difficulty for newspapers. But actually, I think that what the, the one of their major, um, you know, incentives to people is that if you subscribe to the New York Times, the Independent, there's an element of trust and authority there that you just will not get by consuming news mm -hmm. that you see on Facebook or wherever else it is. So I think that's going to be very valuable going forward. I do have a fear, though, that if, you know, the newspapers operating in that way will become much more be beholden to their consumers. Yeah. That is to say that, you know, generally speaking, those who have larger disposable income will be the ones who can spend money on the Irish Independent or the New York Times subscription. And then what effect does that have on the journalists in the New York Times, the Irish Independent? Are they acting for the good of everybody in the public or are they acting for the benefit of their consumers and, uh, you know, pandering to what their consumers are interested in, in a way to to subsidize and continue their own funding model? I, would, I don't know, but I think yes. there are big questions there. No, but I, I would say, and just to kind of go off that a little bit, that I think that has probably always been the case because you know you've got your core consumers who are buying physical print anyways and you know if that goes online uh possibility is that majority of that audience are going to carry over if they're dedicated to the platform um mm -hmm. and in cases you know obviously it'll probably attract younger audiences because they're more likely to get online subscription service as opposed to physical print so i think i think it's just really subsidizing one payment for the other really isn't it at this stage and a lot of people like Although I'd say that if you're buying a news yeah, I'd say if you're buying a newspaper, it's a different kind of subsidy. If you see a headline on the front of a newspaper, you can buy that one newspaper for what, two, three quid. And that I mean that that's you and that newspaper's relationship is over at the point at which you depart, you know, mm -hmm. at the point at which you hand over your money. I wonder how many people are likely to, if they see a scoop on the Irish Independent, go, right, well, I'll start my subscription today, because that's a longer form, you know, that's a longer financial relationship that you're initiating yeah. with a newspaper. Whereas when it was print, you could just buy one copy and, you know, if you're interested in that. The thing I'll say about that is um, I'm not sure if it's the same for majority of news publications, but a lot of them do a buy article payment. So you can do like a, if you see a good article, you can pay, I think it's 99p or whatever to get access to read that one article. So if you're not interested in getting the full subscription service, which is a monthly yeah. fee, you can get the one article and whatnot. So I, I think they've done quite well at adapting it. I think it's probably the best thing they could have done because, you know, at the end of the day, you're reporting stuff in a written format and there's not really much way you can go outside of that besides making that available for people without having to go to the shop mm -hmm. mm. I, I i i'm concerned ever so slightly though with what i mean who loses out in that transition if you look at spotify for example its funding model is designed in such a way and universal music and all this is is that actually you know the big companies like universal music and and, and spotify do really well out of the new model whereby people listen to music by subscribing to apple podcasts or spotify whatever it is and the people who sometimes lose out are you know uh, the independent and small um uh, you, you know musicians because they their funding doesn't come in the same way that it would have prior to all of this i wonder whether it is the case if you move from a newspaper uh, you know print to online does do i mean if, would you say that if you go onto an app would you expect to see the same breadth and depth and extent of content that you would see if you open up every single page in a newspaper. You know, I, I wonder, I wonder if that's the case. I, I would argue the same, the same content is there, I think. And I think the same quality of content, I think it just opens it up more so that there's 
there's more bite-sized content now which is good for people who are on the move and don't have time to be reading very full-length articles like you can get your daily rundown of articles like I know the independents send me emails in the morning being like here's what you missed or here's what you might be interested in and I think a really good way in which they've actually gone about making sure that and we talked a little bit about you know prescribing to an audience and maybe this is a maybe this is a bad thing in 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 some people's eyes but if you view a certain number of articles I know that at least with regards to data the Irish Independent will send you relevant articles that they think you might also be interested in so I think that's a good that like that is in a certain sense maybe it's conforming to your own view of the world already but at the same time it's also giving you relevant articles that you're more likely to read that maybe you probably would have missed out on otherwise. Yeah, I mean, that brings us into another whole interesting conversation about the nature of algorithms and things. And I know that YouTube came under fire. Uh, you mentioned paper reviews. I was on the, the newspaper headlines the day after that horrendous terrorist uh, attack in Christchurch in mm. New Zealand. Remember that where the white supremacists yeah, yeah. Um, ran into the, 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 um, the mosque in Christchurch and uh, huge numbers of people were injured and killed and and that was uh, you know eventually that was traced back to i think he was from australia and you know his internet history showed that he'd spent huge amounts of time on i think it was 4chan which was the platform or 4chan yeah very hands-off 4chan yeah and in terms of its its, its regulations of what content was discussed and uh, youtube and mm-hmm. uh, you know if i remember this correctly part of our discussion was you know uh, youtube algorithms are designed in such a way and I can only speak for this because I recall this distinctly, are designed in such a way that you will be given content that aligns with what you've already watched. Mm-hmm. But sure, it, it, and then the question was asked, is there not responsibility for providers like YouTube to say, well, you know, actually, even every so often, we're going to you know, put videos in front of you that challenge what it is that you have watched and what it is that you believe and offer a different side of the story. And I think that, I mean, if you look, it's the same with Facebook. And I know TikTok has phenomenal algorithm part. Um, although it doesn't have, you know, it's a, it's a much more lighthearted, um, you know, platform with a lot more levity. I wonder, is there an ethical responsibility on people who make algorithms, albeit they are private companies? Is there an ethical responsibility on them to ensure that they are not complicit in the you know, inculcation of people into a particular worldview by constantly reaffirming it and, you know, and, and continuing to, to put the same content into their you know, a social media echo chamber. I, mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question, but I think yeah. it's one that big companies will need to grapple with. Oh, yeah. To add on with that, actually, it's interesting in the sense because when we talk about, you know, algorithms with regards to news information, you know, that's a, I think that's a very different story to when you bring up something like YouTube because YouTube in its nature is primarily an entertainment website. You know, it's, it's not meant to be viewed, be it there are news areas and there's a news category. I think, as you can say, as opposed to the Irish Times, which solely focuses on majority newsworthy sources and newsworthy stories, YouTube kind of caters to anyone and any anything with a niche, whether it be big or small. But I, I do I do agree with you that there probably is a an incentive need. I wouldn't say it's more so with the algorithm. I think it's more to do with YouTube as a system. I think they need to, like they started, uh, I know a while back, and I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but, you know, if you had a certain word in your tags that could have been considered, you know, um, you know, just going against YouTube's guidelines, you know, they would be more likely to pull that video, demonetize it, you know, disincentivize an individual to continue to create content, you know, and that has had its backlash as well, 100%. Like even I see it myself, you know, channels are getting, you know, 
stripped of subscribers, stripped of, you know, viewership or whatever. Like I noticed yesterday, one of my videos, this is, this is very small in the water. Like it went from, it was on 400 views at one stage. And then all of a sudden I refresh the page, it goes down to 320. So they've, I don't, I don't know how it, like the algorithm, I think in itself and YouTube as a system has a long way to go before it's perfect. But I think there's a, well, don't go on there. Well, let, let me ask you this then. How do um, reputable and trustworthy news sources encourage people to come to them for news rather than go to the platforms where news is both free and presented in a much more kind of fun, accessible way? I mean, the number of people, I've, and I've seen recently in polling, who say that their major news source is Facebook, you know, and it's interesting they say Facebook rather than, you know, an article on Facebook that came from another source. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think a challenge for, and not just for not just for for sort of for news organisations, but for everyone is perhaps how do we make sure that people are are uh, consuming their information from places that are that are reputable. It is definitely easier if you wanted to to just get all your news by scrolling through Facebook and that being your primary source of of you know uh, uh, of information. And, uh, but what we need, what should be, you know, what these big news organizations need to be doing is saying to themselves, well, how can we try to challenge that? How can we attract people to come to our news organization? I, I wonder what you think about this as well. I know that, is it the Washington Post? Their, their tagline is democracy dies in darkness, hmm. which, which is obviously goes, you know, it's a really interesting thing. And they were very involved in water I think was it Washington Post journalists who's kind of uncovered the whole Watergate thing yeah and that aspect of journalism is salient and really important and it's about uncovering things that that, that, that powerful people don't want you to know I can't remember who it was but that line about you know uh, news is about finding out things that powerful people don't want you to know everything else is storytelling mm -hmm. I mean that has some that has I mean there are salient points within there certainly but I wonder also whether our responsibility more and more of journalism is to try to, you know, they say democracy dies in darkness, but what about people who just don't want to switch on the light? The information is all there. If you read the Washington Post, no doubt you will find out loads of things that you didn't know before. But what if you are not inclined to read the Washington Post? Why? Because maybe it challenges opinions that you already hold for the good and for the bad. I think a responsibility of journalism as well needs to be to, to make sure that they are taking the the world is so full of information all of the time and whereas journalism used to be about finding information perhaps an even larger part of it now is about presenting information in a way that is coherent that a way that is honest and a way that accurately reflects uh, reality hmm. I, I think maybe maybe that needs to be an emphasis in journalism um, rather than you know just the investigative part and I'm sure, I'm, you know, that's not an original thought, by the way, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. coming up with anything um, as self-righteous as I might sound. I'm very aware that none of this is original, but it just strikes me as, as you know, um, something that perhaps is becoming more difficult than it has in the past. Yeah, I think I think one of the it's obviously still obviously a developing platform, the Internet, like it's easy to forget that it's not that old in relativity to, you know, news Um but with regards to say like, I think there's little improvements being made. Like if we talk about Facebook or not Facebook, but if we talk, well, we can talk about Facebook in a second and I'm sure there's plenty of controversies to go with that. But with regards to say something like YouTube, I know they rolled out a plan, I think it's either a year or two years ago in which if you were a an established news organization, 
uh, if somebody clicked onto your video, there would be a disclaimer underneath. Well, not even a disclaimer, but it would say that this is a news corporation and this is where they're from. And I think that goes a long way in confirming, you know, to people that this is a reputable source. Now, obviously still, you know, big news corporations are, you know, as we all know from the antics in America are also open to, you know, biases, but at least giving people that knowledge to know that they're an established news corporation, that there is an entity behind them that you can see and name is probably the best way about it. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, you go abroad and freedom of speech is not as accessful. I think that's a different story entirely with regards to this sort of uh, realm of speaking. But when you look at, say, more generalized news, you know, or corporations, you know, there needs to be a, a level of accountability. And I think it's getting better. But there's, there's just such a, such an amount of really poorly informed and in some cases just downright offensive content online that doesn't get filtered out and that's something that needs to be like i i think everyone can point to someone when they were younger including myself you know who was who went down a youtube rabbit hole of just extreme content like and it's yeah the problem is that that's more of a that's more of a regular occurrence than not i think that's the big thing and there's very few people who actually come out of that and then say oh well, maybe i was wrong because it's it's easy to believe the the content you consume at the time because it's it's easy content to believe and you know it's easy on your eyes and it makes you, and it confirms pretty much everything you're doing and it gives you as i mentioned earlier simple solutions to really complicated answers and i think the big problem with that is just trying to educate people especially in regards to education like more people should be doing politics as a subject for their final year exams because if you go out into the world with say like and I don't mean this in a bad way but home economics isn't going to critically allow you to critically think more than say politics you know and I think well well let me let me throw something in here which is interesting hmm. I ag- agree with your point in regards to education where maybe I disagree is that I'm not sure if necessarily that education needs to be you know uh, politics uh, and I people do this all the time it's such a cliche but if you go to Scandinavia I, I know in, in Finland, if only because a, a close friend of mine uh, who is studying to be a teacher did an Erasmus term or spent a term in Finland, and we talked about this extensively, um, there are dedicated portions of your curriculum that are designed for, um, are designed in such a way, uh, they're for um, uh, critically evaluating content. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more than politics. It's teaching you things like, you know, what, what is a reputable source? And um, what are the hallmarks of, uh, you know, uh, when should you be questioning information and how should you question information? If you get overly emotional at a story, then perhaps you should be questioning where it came from. If your story was shared by, you know, certain types of people, then, it's, you know, the, the kind of um, how to critically, um, critically evaluate information is something very important. And I think it probably goes beyond politics. Uh, well, insofar as, throwing this into the mix, um, uh, the vaccine approved in the uh, United Kingdom. This week, a woman from Enniskillen was the very first person uh, who received it uh, this morning, actually in Coventry. You know, the kind of anti-vaccination literature that does the rounds isn't exclusively tied to politics. That's a scientific mm-hmm. issue. But nonetheless, there are significant groups of people who will, you know, eat all of that up. Why? Because it comes from, you know, their friend has shared it on Facebook or yeah. it seems believable or it uses language that portrays it in such a way as it might be credible. Those are all difficult things to take apart and perhaps a little bit more time spent on 
educating young people how to critically evaluate information would be a valuable way to do it. But I am incidentally aware of the fact that society's answer to every problem these days is, oh, stick it in the curriculum and teach young people how to do it. And I'm, I'm aware of the frustrations of teachers who say that, you know, why is it that every problem in society is, is, is you know, lugged on to us and we need mm -hmm. to solve, you know, any number of problems. We'll just stick it into an already overly saturated curriculum. But I do think that that's a valuable skill. Yeah, um, there's um, definitely because when I was thinking about it, when I went to college, you know, I think this is something and I know this is kind of hark back to the education bit, but it's something that probably should be looked at a bit more in earlier development is when I went to college, obviously I'm studying law and history, which requires quite a bit of, you know, in-depth research and whatnot. But when you go, you know, there's a spe specific module about research, you know, and like it, it's the assumption that you don't know how to research something already, which is kind of troubling. Um, you know, you think like, cause I don't know if it's the same for you, but when you're in secondary school and you know, you're going for your exams, the idea is to absorb information and just nearly vomit it onto the page in the exam hall and then get your marks. It's not. So I think from an early age, you're kind of just conditioned to almost read something, take that in as if there's nothing to be criticized about it. Um, and it's really, it, I think it depends on the individual, like, you know, what they come into contact with or who they know and whatnot about how they grow in critical development. There's not really a a one thing you can point to and say, well, everyone has this fundamental critical development skill because it hasn't been made available to them. So maybe there's maybe there's something much more to look into in that point. But I think it's definitely needs to be started at an earlier age. Yeah. No, um, yeah. That's a so we some pretty heavy-handed topics there. Uh, but I think we can maybe push back to a little bit more about what you do. So uh, we talked a little bit before the show about the scoop, which is. Uh, associated with queen's radio and you run it um i believe you're well what is your position fully in queen's radio that's a good question it, it, it i didn't set up a structure one should say so within queen's radio i am the head of news mm -hmm. and the news service at queen's radio is called the scoop so when I when I started this year, really the scoop was kind of just uh, was the name of a show that was hosted by the head of news mm -hmm. and consisted of some podcasts and stuff. I have tried to, and I've been fortunate enough, as I mentioned earlier, to have you know a couple of years behind me of um, working in this general area that I've tried to inject with a bit of new energy. Um, so we we you know we've moved to do these big shows on a Sunday the scoop on Sunday which is two our live shows and we have shows that go out during the week that are focused on different areas we have one on you know celebrity and entertainment issues we have one on mental health we have one on environmental issues we have one on sport mm -hmm. different aspects of news uh, and then the centerpiece of the whole thing as I say is that show on a Sunday and then we have written content that goes out as well so yeah I, I haven't done I, I've done sort of plenty of radio stuff before but i haven't been involved in queen's radio before mm -hmm. and over the course of lockdown as i'm sure was the case from very many people i was kind of looking back on my last year going there was all these things i said i, I would do and one of them was to get involved with queen's radio mm -hmm. so I, I i cobbled together an application over the summer and chucked it in so i've been in this i've been head of news here since um let me see since september of this year um, and you and, and you've been involved with it as well and have been absolutely fantastic in the content that we've put out and we've I think we've got a really strong team together mm -hmm. Northern Ireland and Queens in particular I think there'd be few people who would dispute that this is a part of the world where young people and all people are incredibly engaged in politics 
uh, incredibly engaged in their community, engaged in social issues. And then when you combine that with the fact that, you know, uh, politics in Northern Ireland is, is kind of uh, volatile, very interesting. And actually we're going through a period of time in history when politics is at the center of, you know, human interaction and, and, and conversation. Um, I, I've really, I think I've been lucky and tried to capitalize upon that and, and, and make the scoop something worthwhile in Queen's Radio. So yeah, so we're, we've, we've done one term of it. I've been really proud of what we've done. And um, I have another year of university to go as well. So um, I'm hoping that between, you know, now and me graduating, we can shape the scoop into something really a formidable news outlet on campus because uh, you know young people here have a huge amount to offer and it's a it's a great platform to try out new things and learn new things and that's what i'm trying to encourage so um uh, yeah so it's a it's a confusing setup because you have queen's radio is kind of the umbrella thing mm-hmm. and then you have the scoop which is an ever so slight offshoot of it but i am part of the committee for queen's Queen's Radio. The advantage, I suppose, actually, if one was to dig into why that is, it comes from um, a very, a point of view of maintaining kind of integrity and neutrality. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if Queen's Radio committee voted to support maybe a strike of students or support a particular charitable cause, the scoop would be insulated from that, as all news organizations should be. It can remain neutral. That's where it comes from. But I suppose, you know, in, in practice at a student level, that doesn't mean much, but it's nice to see that the principles are in place. Yeah. With regards to the, the scoop and the earlier mentioned challenges Northern Ireland, which we were involved in, both of them are very much, you know, particularly interested in youth voices and student issues. Is that because, you know, in your line of work at the moment, you've always been particularly interested in that? Or is it the case maybe that it feels like it's the only real thing at the moment that you feel there's a gap in which you can facilitate and report on right now? Well, two things. One, uh, uh, when when you are a young person, it is much easier to get other young people to contribute. Mm-hmm. I've tried, particularly on our Scoop on Sunday show, um, to base it around because it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's a news service for you know at Queen's Radio. I will always try to get you know uh, the, the 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 chairperson of the political parties on campus on a show to talk rather than as we could very feasibly do and i'm very confident get regular contributors you know an mla or something to phone in mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i know and we have had a few but i'm always kind of of the opinion that you know our job is to represent students our job is to provide news for students and our job like all societies across campus is to give opportunities for students mm-hmm. so i mean the way i look at it is i would rather have a young person coming on you know representing I don't know, the DUP or Sinn Féin or uh, there is a Fine Gael branch uh, on campus. I'd rather have one of them come on so they can develop their skills in terms of media, develop their skills in terms of art, you know, debating other people, uh, uh, PR skills. I'd rather have them on rather than get sort of an MLA who's going to phone in from home uh, or something else. I think that's much more valuable and also much more interesting to students. So that's one is that young being young means that other young people are much more accessible. And two is that I mean, I set up challenges with Jack in 2000 and just after the, around the time of the Brexit vote. Mm. Now, a lot has changed since then. What I would say is that, I mean, in Northern Ireland, we ran a hustings, which is where you get all the different candidates for an election and kind of have a debate. That is not part of the culture, the political culture of Northern Ireland. 
up until now. And a number of people commented to us, to us at the time that this was something really quite novel and different, despite the fact that hustings have been a, a political mainstay of every single church hall in every constituency up and down England, Scotland and Wales for the better part of a century. It did not exist here. And then add to that the fact that I don't think at that time young people were particularly engaged. Now, since then, two major things have happened. One is Brexit and the other was the election of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and now, if, if put aside any particular political preferences for or against Jeremy Corbyn, in combination, both of the, those two things put a rocket up youth engagement in politics. Mm -hmm. and, and now, it's fantastic to see how many young people care about politics. I have an ever so slight fear, incidentally, that, you know, uh, huge numbers of students will, will study politics at school and then at university and then they'll come out and graduate and be all ready to get stuck into the world of politics and then you know real world politics will go back to the way it was before mm -hmm. and it will all be very boring and there won't be any jobs and all of these people who whose political you know who were born in baptism of fire of brexit and corbyn and trump and all this will suddenly find that politics really isn't as interesting <laughs> as it sometimes makes out to be it might go sort of you know the more technocratic days of the mid 2000s where you know i remember the you know sort of the 2015 election where the biggest argument was about like electricity bills or something you know it's kind of fun. anyway um so uh, you know uh, giving young people that voice is vital and um the other thing i'd say finally sorry i don't want to ramble on i've rambled a lot here but anyway the other thing that i think is really m missing I'll do some more pontification here. Uh, something I think is really missing in society is intergenerational uh, engagements and communication. The experiences that you and I have grown up with um, are more different than the experiences of our grandparents than between any other generations in history. Actually, let's even just say par parents. So the world in which you and I grew up, have grown up with technology, uh, computers, uh, globalization, you know, international economies is so different from our parents who grew up, you know, 60s, 70s, maybe even maybe after that. The differences between those two experiences are further apart, I believe, than almost any other generation in history, perhaps excluding sort of the Industrial Revolution, which means that the communication and the engagement between generations is is really really difficult we've seen a bit of this in covid where that you know there's there's sort of hate going both ways whereas you know old, and this is where the whole you know karen and boomer thing comes from in some ways where you know and, and then older people go oh, so the, the reason for covid increasing is because oh those young people are out and about and they're you know going to parties and all this kind of stuff and then young people go the reason our politics is so toxic is because old people all vote this way or that way or you know whatever it is gay marriage or abortion or whatever these issues are i'm fundamentally of the opinion that if we can increase the level of communication and contact and you know engagement between different generations that would go a long way in the name of social cohesion so you know as much as student voices young voices are really important it's part of a much bigger equation um that involves older people being heard, ethnic minorities being heard, um, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's, you know, it's part of a puzzle um, and it's part of a puzzle that I've been really proud to play a tiny, tiny, tiny little part in. With the, obviously when it comes to say radio or TV, one of the big things is always going to be interviewing people, talking to people. So you've yes. interviewed 
everyone from say just normal everyday students to in certain cases you know political party leaders and I think most notably the one is Mary Lou Macdonald who you did an interview with there I think it's a week or two ago now at this stage is it? Probably closer to a month I'd say maybe yeah. Oh god your time's flying already um, but no yeah that was a fantastic interview by the way but the yeah. the one question I have is you know at least for me, when I first started out doing interviews, uh, my first ever interview was with Joan Freeman. And at the time, obviously, you can imagine, you know, you're not in your home turf, you're going into Leinster House to interview someone who's in the political sphere. Granted, a very lovely person and probably not a politician at heart, you know, you're going and you're absolutely bricking it. Like, you know, you're kind of yeah. like, oh, I better get this right. I better not say this, that or the other. And I better make sure it's all right. And then when you start, it kind of gets a bit better. And I, I noticed the, the style kind of, you know, the nerve sort of dies down a little bit, like, you know, uh, especially with later interviews, uh, even my most recent one with a politician, Annie Hoey or Duncan Smith, like I was a lot more relaxed about going into those. But for you, do you find that it's more nerve wracking for you to go into an interview with, say, someone like Mary Lou Macdonald? Or do you think it's kind of it's stabilized nerve across all regions, you know, so it doesn't matter if it's Mary Lou or if it's a student or whatnot, an interview is an interview. It's a good question. I suppose the first thing to say is that um, these things come with practice. You will no doubt have noticed that, you know, and, and you alluded to it there, you know, your first interview as compared to your last. The first interview of any real note that I did was with Karen Bradley. This is a funny story, actually. Former Secretary of State to Northern Ireland, um, mm -hmm. who, and I don't think I would be speaking out of turn when I say was fairly universally disliked um, she wasn't very popular. I, 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 I would, I would, I think that's a fairly objective viewpoint. I'm not even. I mean, she was, she wasn't terribly successful in the job. She wasn't terribly popular. Now, things were certainly not going in her favor. The DUP at the time were, um, the DUP at the time were in confidence and supply. Neither the DUP nor Sinn Fein had any real incentive to go back into Stormont because electorally they were doing very well. Sinn Fein had got its its, its highest, you know, election results in. Uh, in the Stormont elections, the DUP had done very well in Westminster. It was in nobody's interest to go back into. It's a difficult position, but I went up and did an interview with her, and it was really, it was really not very good. Uh, it kind of stumbled from pillar to post. She didn't give us that long anyway. But uh, and then I've done more sort of since then. Uh, Michelle O'Neill, not that long ago, and then I flew over and did some in around the time of the real parliamentary furor over Brexit, thirty first of October or whatever those deadlines were, I can't remember anymore, you know, with Vince Cable and Anna Soubry and stuff. Um, I will say this, sorry, by Karen Badley, and then I'll go back to your point, is that one of the first questions we were going to ask her was some sort of quiz questions about Northern Ireland, you know, how many counties does Northern Ireland all this? And she's a politician, she batted all that off and said, you know, I'm not going to answer quiz questions, I'm here for the real substantive issues and stuff. Um, and then about, let me see, was it maybe a month before she stepped down or after that she revealed to some newspaper or other that when she had come to Northern Ireland it took her a while to realize that unionists didn't vote for nationalist parties and nationalists didn't vote for unionist parties you know so as it turns out my quiz questions about you know how many counties there are in Northern Ireland that will annoy some people but being a career ender are, you know in this part of the world might have actually been yeah yeah I might have been right and that might have been too high a bar in some ways but anyway <laughs> I don't want to I, I don't want to I don't want to overly discredit her in terms of in terms of interviews in general the point I'm making is that you know it, it comes with practice and it, mm. those nerves kind of die down I feel but I mean you can never get complacent in terms of the amount of research that you do especially when you're talking to I mean Mary Lou for uh, Mary Lou McDonald for example is a 
I can probably say this fairly objectively as well, is a, a really phenomenal uh, political operator. She, uh, you know, she's, she is, um, she's generally very good in interviews. Mm -hmm. She has an answer to everything. She has a, a great ability to connect. I think that her and Nicola Sturgeon actually share quite a lot of qualities and in the way in which they connect with people. Now, there's all the politics that goes behind that and stuff, but uh, it means that when you're interviewing somebody like that, you, know, you, you need to be armed with the facts because, uh, you know, uh, Ian Blackford, who's the SNP leader at the House of Commons, was, I, I interviewed him maybe two weeks ago. And I mean, every 10 minutes he was going, oh, I'll tell you a wee story here, Thomas, you know, and then it'll be sort of 10 minutes later and all this kind of stuff. So as long as you come armed with the facts, I think, I think, I think that's very important. Um, and then the other thing that I think is, is a valuable thing to do is to try to draw parallels um, and find little connections, I think, especially if you're doing kind of longer form interviews. What you want to try to do is find things that your audience can relate with, particularly if talking about like, you know, the history of the past or somebody's own experiences. Here's an example is that, you know, in, in Blackford, as it turns out, was a member of a, <clears throat> a grouping within the SNP called the 79 group, which now looks really quite reminiscent of what momentum is in the Labour Party in the UK, a kind of quite radical Republican socialist grouping, and then trying to draw those parallels together so that, you know, a, a person's life and history and perspectives are as relatable as possible. It's something that I've always tried to do. Um, although it must be said also, you know, I'm a big fan of kind of, you know, difficult questions, as long as I have, you know, a paper with all, all the facts written on them. You know, I think that, you know, it's kind of 50-50 between the nice, easy questions to let them bat something off about their own political history and, and the tougher questions to really, you know, hold their feet to the fire. Mm -hmm. You've um, you've worked in like both TV and radio at this stage. Which one do you prefer? Uh, radio, probably. Mm -hmm. um, I have a face for radio. You know, I mean, listen, here's what I'll say about TV is that one of the problems with TV is that um, you spend an awful lot of time being occupied with, you know, what we're seeing on the screen here, all this mm. kind of stuff. Um, I've done sort of TV shows before where and it's just, you need to then to be concerned about stuff like eye contact, where your eye line is. <clears throat> you need to be concerned with how you're standing. You need to be concerned with how you look and how your guests look. You need to be concerned with, you know, any number of things that are, are mm. irrelevant to the content. What I, <clears throat> excuse me, what I kind of like about radio is that, um, it, you know, the only thing that matters is what you're saying, mm -hmm. which means you, know, you can have the papers splayed everywhere. It can be an absolute mess around the place, but as long as you know your stuff, it can come across really well. I think that, you know, television is great and it definitely reaches larger audiences, but there's an awful lot of superfluous nonsense that is applied on top of that. You know, get your makeup done. What are you wearing? Where are you standing? All this kind of stuff. And actually, you know, I, I think that largely that adds relatively little. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd say, yeah, I'd say radio. Yeah, that's interesting in a sense because it actually, it brings my mind back to... Um... A documentary I watched a couple of years back, which was talking about the uh, presidential campaigns between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And most notably, I'm not sure if you'd be aware of this story, but yeah, one of the, the presidential debate one of where. Yeah. And for the listeners, I'll just I'll briefly run through it. It was very much so the case that one of the presidential debates between uh, JFK and Richard Nixon uh, was both televised and put on radio. And for the radio listeners, 
Nixon came across as the better half and there was like 60% approval rating for Nixon. But on television, the visual aspect played against him completely because obviously, you know, you know, JFK was known as, you know, sort of the young, you know, good looking president that everyone sort of got behind. So it's interesting in that sense that is it more of a like, because obviously, you know, we all have ears, we all have eyes and we all see different things. But is the visual aspect in a certain sense, is it as important? Because, you know, obviously the content, you know, comes out of your mouth and it's what you're hearing. But not everyone goes around with, you know, a pair of sunglasses on and, you know, maybe like 20 pairs of sunglasses that they didn't want to see, you know, you're still seeing stuff. So obviously it's going to play into your perception of the world. So maybe is the visual aspect as important in that sense? Well, I mean, my answer to that, I suppose, in, in politics in general is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, the substance of your arguments and the content is the most important thing and always will be. Mm-hmm. Nothing will refute that. But politics these days is about, you know, leadership and it's about communication and it's about engagement and it's about relationships and these are all things that need that mean that if you are able to use the visual aspect in a positive and constructive way you will be all the better for it Mm -hmm. now obviously there are those who will favor one over the other and will you know be fantastic on television and always say the right thing and always look in the right way but there's nothing behind it and then there will be those who look awful and you know can't communicate and can't deal with the television but you know they know all their stuff mm-hmm. trying to find that middle ground this is most difficult but it you know it's definitely the case that in the 21st century i think politics is uh, you know it's a form of i don't want to say entertainment but you need to be able to use the media in order to communicate and if you're not able to do that you know politics in the 21st century isn't going to be for you mm-hmm. so as much as i'm you know ever so slightly derisive about that aspect of journalism it's a really critical part of it yeah. you know the stuff that people watch you know, far more people will watch you know the news at 10 or question time or news night than will be constantly listening to the radio all day mm-hmm. so you know if you want to be a little bit like me and and issue television in favor of you know pure content on radio then fair enough but you need to be able to be prepared to to sacrifice um large groupings of people who don't listen to the radio and they watch television and you need to go where the people are i have a lot of respect there's a couple of journalists up at um, ulster university who have been doing some great work in terms of engaging with student with the young people on tiktok and doing journalism on tiktok mm-hmm. My, I know it's not really for me. That's not something I would be good at or particularly want to do, but that's a really valuable form of journalism and you need to go where your audiences are. You know, the days of radio dominance are over. Uh, television became the new thing. And actually it's probably the case that, you know, television days are over. It's all internet now and it's all, you know, three minute videos on, on Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is. So, you know, a, the at the end of the job of a journalist is to inform their audiences. And so if you need to inform them by, by being on TikTok or by making short videos or by, you know, doing your hair and getting your makeup and looking well and facing the camera, so be it. You know, it's part of the job. I, I think I can speak for everyone when uh, I say that, you know, we would be extremely humbled and honored if Thomas Copeland reported the news to us on TikTok. Yeah, well, I, I'm yet to, <laughs> you know what? This is, a, this is a very true story, actually. So over lockdown, 
I downloaded TikTok and I never made an account. The reason I downloaded TikTok is because I was watching on Instagram. You know what all appears on Instagram? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I know you won't believe me when I say this, but and what I noticed was that there's some fantastic um, editors on TikTok. The mm. way in which those videos are edited is better than huge amounts of proper television that I see. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. A, a combination of the editing software and the creativity of people using that platform is astounding. Mm-hmm. The way in which those videos are constructed and edited and put together is um, of a higher quality than a lot of professional editors that I have yeah. come across, undoubtedly. Um, I mean, you and I both use things like, well, you much more than me, you know, Premiere Pro and Audacity Premiere Pro and After Effects and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The best stuff, I mean, I, and I pay money for subscriptions to some of those things. And I have never been able to make content that looks half as good as some of the best videos on TikTok. And, you know, that platform and the editing software that it gives its users is extraordinary. Uh, no, I never went so far as to, I, I, I kind of, I, I cheated every study because I downloaded the app. And then there was all these rumors going around about how all the data was being harvested. And I thought to myself, I used that as an excuse to delete it because I didn't terribly want to get addicted to sort of TikTok as well as Twitter. Mm. Um, you know, despite the fact that I, I'll, I'll willingly hand over all of my data to Google and Facebook, every possible opportunity, you know, you know, in order to make my login process to some other website slightly easier. I use that as an excuse to get rid of TikTok. But, you know, listen, I think I think journalism needs to make sure that it's not pretentious or, you know, derisory towards new platforms. Yeah. TikTok is one of them. There's a, there's a funny story, actually, and I know I've taken a lot of your time and I've only two more questions after this, but okay. I, I'll quickly run into it because uh, there's a, I'm not sure if you're aware of the program on RT This Week in Politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of their a lot of their stuff on social media, and this is this isn't a jab at this week in politics, but it it looks fairly amateur. I think a lot of it is made on like iMovie or whatnot. And one day, you know, I was particularly you know feeling particularly big, you know, had a bit of an ego on me. So <laughs> I sent I sent the page a message being like, "Hi, big fan of the show. Notice that your quality, and I, I'm sure everyone's really busy in RT or whatnot, but your quality <laughs> looks really." <laughs> obviously speaking because obviously they're going to be they're going to be busy uh you know uh wanted to get on their good side before you know delivering the killer blow that their content wasn't as good as they thought it might be but i was like uh oh i I noticed your your um your videos they look uh without being rude uh quite amateur and you know could do it a bit of pepping up like and i do work on like editing this that and the other and i'd be more than happy to help out suffice to say the person saw it and probably said who the this guy like get off yeah. my screen <laughs> so, but i just oh, i just thought that was i just I, I always think back to that and i think about the audacity i had sending that message at the time no Did but you are right him? there's a there's a lot of people who may not even know it but have a very good uh you know ability to edit content now i'm not including myself in this bracket but i i will put it out like there's people who make very short stuff as you mentioned on tiktok that have such a a, a brilliant array of talent and i wish they just get more involved in the media sphere in that sense as well well it's people who have an eye for it i'll mm-hmm. tell you a story because there's a a fantastic uh producer slash kind of journalist uh, chap called johnny harris mm. who works for vox and anybody listening to this, I highly recommend you go out and check out Johnny Harris. And he does a story, you know, because he does wonderful things. I think he does like, um, 
oh, Vox Beyond Borders, where he goes to India and the Arctic and Hong Kong and all these people and, mm-hmm. and, and edits and, co- and, and films and, you know, drones and all that kind of stuff, all his content himself. And he tells a similar story, incidentally, which is his, 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 his um, you know, gateway into editing was he sent a, a message to the U.S. State Department <laughs> saying that one of the videos that they had made on an internship that they were advertising was pretty poor and could he make a new one and they replied to him saying listen well listen if you're doing it for free absolutely send it to us and that was how he got into it so you know <laughs> listen it works for some people yeah obviously this week in politics we're happy with their content yeah. so what i what i will say sorry just on, <laughs> on an ever so slightly serious note is that and this is something that i know i need to improve on as budgets become smaller and you know money's not infinite it used to be back in the day that if you were maybe a broadcast journalist you would go and cover a story and there would be a cameraman, there would maybe be a producer, and there would be you as a journalist, and you'd stand in front of the camera and the camera, you know, all this kind of stuff. Mm. These days, it, uh, oh, sorry. And then when you come back to, you know, base, you hand over all of your rushes to an editor, and then you sit beside the editor as you edit out the script, and he edits it into place, and then it's all sent off and transcoded and sent on and put on broadcast on the 10 of the 6, right? Mm. These days, increasingly, And I'm not saying that I have personal experience of this, but more and more people that I speak to tell me that, you know, the budgets are just so tight that you're sent out with your own camera. Um, you need to go somewhere. You need to film the rushes yourself. You need to film yourself, you know, doing your piece to camera. Then you need to come back to base. You need to stick, you know, get your SD card out, stick it in, jump onto Premiere Pro or Logic or, you know, whatever it is. Um, edit it yourself and spit it out. Now, to be fair, that probably isn't for you know the big stuff that goes on the you know BBC News at ten or RTE at whatever time. But mm. well, I mean, th- those demands uh, journalists these days need to be much more multimedia than they have in the past, and that's definitely something that I need to work on. Mm. You know, I'm very aware of the fact, and it's it's on my list for Christmas is to get my head a bit more around Premiere Pro. And I did a good bit over summer there, but it's all jumped out of my head again. The, so, okay, we're on to the final two questions now. Uh, again, I want to say, you know, you've taken so much time out already. You know, we're well past the hour, so thanks a million. Um, hey, listen, I, I'll, I'll happily talk away on politics, <laughs> you know, to, to an ungrateful audience for as long, as long as you want. We, we've had a, we've had a discussion there for the past hour. I think it would be described as an interview. I'd like to think of it more as a two-way discussion in this sense. But you know, you partake, uh, you partake in you know giving interviews yourself. You know, being interviewed. Which would you say, in your set, at least for you personally, is more difficult? Giving interviews or or being, being interviewed? interviewed. Being interviewed. Hmm. Definitely. There's a pre- there's sort of a pressure to come up with answers. I mean, if you listen back to this, particularly at the part where we were talking about, um, what were we talking about? Uh, Democratisation of news and all that kind of stuff. You will see when I run out of things to say and start making stuff up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I find that it's, it's much more difficult. Than, and in that light, I have sympathy sometimes for politicians when they are asked questions and sort of just when they're asked questions that are sufficiently vague that there's no clear-cut kind of you know you know give us the answer to it but they need to come up with something else yeah no definitely I, I, i'd say that being interviewed is more difficult because you're you, you know when you are interviewed the presumption is that in some way shape or form you have an authority on a given subject and yeah. the truth is that and this is true of anything that we've talked about over the last hour nothing that you and i have said is is groundbreaking or new we're just giving our perspectives on it and in some ways 
you know, the kind of pressure of, of being asked a question somehow implies that you know more than other people do on it. And that's certainly, you know, not the case. This mm -hmm. is all just kind of stuff that you, do you know what I mean? These yeah. are just perspectives. Whatever. So definitely I find, I find that more difficult. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose. Just to round us off then, um, obviously you've been involved in journalism for a while. You most likely, I can't see you deviating from it anytime in the future. What would you say is the one thing you'd hope to achieve by the end of your career? Now, there's probably stuff that'll pop up, but at this very moment, what would you say would be the one thing you'd want? That's a good question. I would love to um, front a, an election night broadcast. I think that would be uh, a unique experience. I mean, one of my sort of heroes in that sense is somebody like, you know, David Dimbleby in the UK, who had, you know, I think he did every election from blah, 20, 1979 to 2017, I think, or 15. I think that, you know, uh, the the thrill and adrenaline of any election night regardless of where you are if you're interested in politics is an experience unlike any other and being at the center of that and reporting the issues i think would just be an enormous amount of fun a huge privilege and uh, you know a, an experience unlike any other so i'd love to at some stage in my career be involved or front a, a, you know an election night broadcast of some way shape or form um i think i think yeah i think that's I, I think that's a yeah that's an accurate reflection of an ambition of mine i think that would be great perfect well thomas copeland thank you so much for sitting down with me today